Good morning. So Dr. Burek introduced me as uh, one of his favorite preachers. The problem is there are so many of them, like thousands of them. So just being one of them doesn't have any bearing significance. <laughs> so do not give any attention with high expectation towards the preacher today, but give highest expectation for God's word from Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, the famous Zacchaeus passage. I'm reading from ESV. Luke 19, 1 through 10. Luke's gospel, chapter 19, verse 1. He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which means innocent or pure. He was a chief tax collector and was rich by defrauding. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. And probably because no one wants to give him, no one, no one wants to give him space. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. Remember, see him was mentioned. To see him was mentioned in the preceding verse. For he was about to pass that way. Passing that way, passing through was mentioned at the beginning of this narrative. So it's repeated. You can see the coupling or pairing that is continuing. Verse 5, and when Jesus came to the place... He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, the villagers, the neighbors saw it, they all grumbled or began grumbling. He, Jesus, has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus spoke to him. Today, salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abram. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, since this is your word, let me and my brothers and sisters in this space humbly submit ourselves under the authority of your word. In Christ's mighty name, amen. When Paul the Apostle closes his second letter, to the Corinthian believers according to what we have in the New Testament. So I'm referring to 2 Corinthians in particular. He is concluding that letter with this particular benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and love of God and koinonia, communion, fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is Trinitarian, thus theologically very significant one of the most clear Trinitarian soundings throughout the New Testament, together with 
the baptismal formula found towards the end of Matthew's gospel, Ephesians 4, Corinthians 12, and some other passages that I can easily list. However, fronting of the grace of, of our Lord Jesus Christ seems to be very significant. That is, of course, showing that Jesus is co-equal with the Father. So there is a divine Christology. But also that is indicating that who Jesus is and what he has done on the cross is essential for our salvation. One of the passages within that unit of a pericope uh, that uh, show the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ most vividly, dramatically, powerfully is today's passage, according to my own estimation. I'm talking about Luke 19, 1 through 10, which I've just read together with you. So we want to just meditate on the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting ourselves humbly under the authority of God's word recorded in Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. So briefly about the structure of today's sermon, I have three main points and one big point of application, and I have a few details under each of them. So when I use a numerical designation first, that could be potentially confusing, okay? So when I say main point, okay, yeah, that is the first tier. When I simply say uh, first point or second point, that is the second tier. Hopefully that clarification would be helpful. Uh, we will begin uh, with my first main point. The very first thing today's text teaches us is that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is so sweet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is so sweet. There are a number of factors that I, I can point to, but due to the restraint of our time, I will just note three specific things, especially between verses 1 through 6. So the first point is, first main point is, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is so sweet, and I'm drawing this point based upon verses 1 through 6 with attention to three particular factors. First of them is found in verse 1, and that has to do with the setting of the passage. Let's read verse 1. He entered Jericho, and he was passing through. Verse 4, once again, he was about to pass that way. What is the indication? What is the implication of the passing through language? That is, Jericho is not the final destination. Jerusalem is. Jesus already gave multiple predictions about his crucifixion and resurrection on the way to Jerusalem. So his mission at the cross is vividly anchored in his heart. He knows what is taking place. He understands very clearly and vividly what he has to go through. And uh, from Jericho to Jerusalem, it's uh, approximately 17 miles away. Some of you drove over 70 miles to come to this chapel or to come to the campus today. By walk, it would take one or two days, okay? If you are relatively healthy in the first century setting. So after multiple predictions of his death on the cross and resurrection, Jerusalem being only 17 miles or so away,
and clearly understanding what is to take place in Jerusalem, especially at the cross, Jesus seems to delay his trip to Jerusalem. But that seeming delay is the very point of this passage. We need to give attention to how this passage begins. Jesus appears to delay his travel plan. If Jesus is not focused on his Jerusalem ministry, his mission on the cross, he may appear to be somewhat distracted. But that seeming distraction is revealing Jesus' heart for the lost, such as Zacchaeus. And that is setting the tone for how we should read the rest of the passage. That is the first point under my uh, first main point. So second of uh, the three factors under the first main point is this, uh, which uh, is based upon verses uh, three through five, that Jesus is meeting our expectations, but often he is surpassing and transcending those expectations. So if you look at verse three, what was the expectation, anticipation on the part of Zacchaeus the tax collector. He was a seeking. So there is intentionality with the language of seeking. He was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was a small in stature. So he wanted to see Jesus. Okay? Verse 4 is repeating the same idea. Zacchaeus climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. That is to see Jesus. You see the pairing. So point of uh, his intent, Zacchaeus' intent, is um, clearly communicated here. So he wanted to see Jesus. If you look at verse 5, okay, let's just uh, assume that Jesus came to the spot using his divine GPS, right? And Jesus is just saying, yeah, all righty, okay, Zacchaeus, I spotted you, I'm here. Okay, you wanted to see me, I'm here, see me for five seconds. I'm very busy, I have Jerusalem mission. Okay? You may not fathom the depth and significance and richness of that ministry, but see me for five seconds. Take that as honor and privilege and true blessing that you must cherish for the rest of your life. No? Jesus is just saying, Zacchaeus, calling his name, thus showing his respect. While the villagers are calling Zacchaeus a sinner, Jesus is addressing his name, thus conforming to first century Jewish etiquette. You know why you see so many uh, direct address instances or vocatives throughout the New Testament, like teacher, Lord. Okay? Uh, you are familiar with those instances in uh, the Gospels? Because that is Jewish etiquette. That's a default Jewish etiquette. If you skip Vocative, direct address, you are becoming rude and you are ignoring and despising that person. A great example is found in the uh, parable of the prodigal son. The first son, when he is reacting to his father's grace and generosity towards the second son, the prodigal, he is skipping the vocative. But in response, the father is still using the vocative for his elder son. So if it is okay to skip the vocative, direct address, in uh, this village of Jericho, yeah, probably you can skip it with Zacchaeus, because he is a tax collector. 
It's a defrauding. He's like a curse. He's worse than a Gentile in a typical Jewish mind. And he's called a sinner, okay? Sinner is not his first name. Sinner is not his last name. But he's labeled a sinner. Verse 7. But Jesus is calling his name. And Jesus says this. Verse 5. It is necessary. So there is a divine necessity. It is necessary for me to stay in your household today. So Jesus didn't just check out and uh, complete his uh, checklist and move on to Jerusalem. No. Jesus is seemingly delaying his travel plan according to our human-oriented observation. But that is a sign of divine grace. I think uh, this second sub-point under the first main point is very significant that the Lord is meeting our expectations, but not always literally. He is transcending those expectations. Thus, Paul the Apostle is confessing this towards the end of the third chapter of the letter written to Ephesians. Ephesians 3, 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. So Jesus met Zacchaeus not at the level of Zacchaeus' expectation. It's not that his hopes and anticipation were met exactly as he desired. Jesus surpassed those expectations. The third sub-point under the first main point is based upon verse 5. Jesus loved Zacchaeus as he was and has become his friend. Jesus befriended Zacchaeus. So there is a notable contrast between Pharisaic activities in the first century context and Jesus' activity here. Pharisees would never fellowship with tax collectors like Zacchaeus. Guilt by association was a well-known concept in first century Mediterranean world, especially first century Palestinian world in Israel. So if you are associated with a guilty and sinful person like a tax collector, Zacchaeus, you are becoming one of them. It's clear. That's why Pharisees clearly and sharply distinguished themselves, differentiated themselves from the group of tax collectors. Becoming a friend and having a meal together, staying at his house, it's unthinkable in a Pharisaic mind in the first century Judaism. But Jesus is quite different. Jesus is inviting himself to Zacchaeus' house. Just one clarification is this. It's not that Jesus was ignorant of or neutral about Zacchaeus' lifestyle, the tax collector's lifestyle. If you look at Matthew chapter 18, the famous church discipline passage, uh, we can uh, read the following, 18, 15, and the following from Matthew's gospel, the famous church discipline paracopy. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he 
Now, do not listen. Take one or two others, small group of people, along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of the two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, pay attention to what follows. Let him be you. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Look at the juxtaposition. Tax collectors in the first century Jewish society were just like Gentiles and could be seen as worse than Gentiles. Okay, they had a Jewish skin. They had a Jewish ethnic background. They had a Jewish blood, but they are acting like Gentiles, thus even worse than the Gentiles. So Jesus was not condoning the lifestyle of Zacchaeus as a tax collector. He just loved him as he was and befriended him. There are a few other details that I can easily add, but even based upon the few factors or sub-points, we can see clearly that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is just so sweet. It's not simply sweet in general, but climactically sweet. With that said, today's passage does not end in verse 6. So we have to move on. So let's give attention to verse 7, from which I draw my second point, which is the grace of our Lord Christ. Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is cross-centered. Once again, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, His grace is cross-centered. So if you look at verse 7, the environment shifts radically. Okay? If you read verses 1 through 6, I mean, you have a sweet, extremely sweet atmosphere. And probably that's why I heard mainly about verses 1 through 6 from this passage as a Sunday school kid. Okay? Youth pastors and uh, uh, the ministers, I mean, they didn't uh, talk too much about verse 7 or verse 8. I don't know what was happening. Okay? Uh, but mainly, mainly I heard a lot about verses 1 through 6, not about 7 and the following. But if you encounter verse 7, or rather be encountered by God's word in verse 7, there is a notable shift, okay? especially uh, with reference to people's attitudes towards Jesus. Jesus was so popular. He was a popular rabbi and prophet. That's why many people went out to see Jesus in the context of his journeying to Jerusalem. And that's why it was hard for Zacchaeus, the tax collector, to have an angle to secure a spot from which to see Jesus. But now, if you look at verse 7, people are not simply blaming Zacchaeus. Rather, they are blaming Jesus. Let's read verse 7. And when they saw it, the villagers saw it, they all grumbled or began grumbling. So it continued for a while. It was uh, the process of uh, grumbling unfolding. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. The idea is this. I thought Jesus is a good prophet or rabbi. I thought he was promising, but he doesn't have any spiritual sense at all. He doesn't have any gift of discernment. That's why he's befriending a person, a horrible and terrible person like Zacchaeus. So he must be a false prophet. Okay? 
He must be a just uh, unethical and immoral teacher. That's why he's condoning Zacchaeus. Although Jesus himself was not condoning Zacchaeus' lifestyle. He was just loving him as he was. So there is a blame transfer. People hated Zacchaeus up to this point. As indicated from the label sinner, he has gone into uh, Zacchaeus' house to be his guest. He has become a guest of a sinner. Once again, sinner is not Zacchaeus' first name, middle name, or last name. It is the ethically and spiritually oriented value judgment and associated label imposed upon this tax collector in light of his lifestyle as a tax collector. So, formerly, Zacchaeus was hated and despised, looked down upon. Now, Jesus is joining that group of people being despised and being looked down upon. Why? Because Jesus has become a friend of Zacchaeus. Because Jesus identified himself with Zacchaeus. Rather than sharply separating himself from Zacchaeus, the tax collector. So there is, once again, a notable contrast between Pharisaic activities and Jesus' activities. But this incident of blame transfer is not coincidental. It's not accidental at all. It's a pattern of Jesus' life and ministry in his first coming. So what was Jesus' first public appearance? How did Jesus begin his ministry? How did Jesus begin his ministry? By being baptized by John. Okay, John the Baptist. Okay, that's not me. Okay, yeah, John the Baptist, that's not me. Okay, we are talking about first century Jewish context. So John the Baptizer was baptizing Jesus, and he had some hesitancy, as you can see from Matthew's Gospel. But it's understandable because his baptism was a baptism of repentance. Baptism characterized by repentance. But Jesus didn't have anything to repent about. And that was with a particular intent, thrust, and purpose. That is for the forgiveness of sins. But Jesus didn't have any sins to be forgiven. Then why did Jesus, why did Jesus go through this baptism? Because he identified himself with the simple and rebellious people of God, even at the outset of his ministry. So you may think, yeah, that is just how to publicly uh, beginning one's ministry, so it may change uh, subsequently. No. If you look at Luke chapter 5, Jesus is blamed for fellowshipping with the tax collectors. Uh, that might be the case in Galilee, because it's a little distant uh, from Jerusalem and Judea. Uh, really just a center of uh, the time. But Jesus is very persistent and consistent. If you look at the introductory verses in Luke chapter 19, famous with the three parables in a collection, which are dealing with um, entities lost, lost sheep, lost coin, and lost son, finally. But if you look at Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, you can see very clearly that Jesus was once again inviting 
tax collectors uh, into fellowship with him, and that was uh, troubling and disturbing on the part of religious authorities of that time. So Jesus was not changing or revising his behavior. Uh, Jesus didn't have a great sense of political correctness. But right before his entry to Jerusalem, you may expect that to be changed. But in today's passage, which is located shortly before Jesus' entry to Jerusalem, Jesus does not change his behavior at all. Jesus intentionally is pursuing Zacchaeus and spending time with him. So Jesus identifying himself with the simple rebellious people of God, that is a pattern. Now let's go forward. Luke's gospel does not end with our passage. It is ending in chapter 24, right? So if you look at the subsequent passages, there is a parable, and then Jesus' entry to Jerusalem. So today's parakopi, Zacchaeus' passage, is the very last passage before Jesus' entry to Jerusalem. In terms of him interacting with any figures, any people. If that is the case, we need to allow some strategic significance of this particular act of Jesus, which is spending time with Zacchaeus. Jesus chose to spend time with Zacchaeus, the tax collector, immediately before his Jerusalem entry. He could have chosen other things. There are many great things that he had done already up to that point and even in Jerusalem, but at this strategic moment, Jesus is intentionally choosing to spend time with Zacchaeus. You may think, yeah, Jesus is a little distracted. I mean, he has his crucifixion, okay? The salvific event, substitutionary atonement to be accomplished at the cross in line with the overall thrust of uh, Old Testament prophetic witnesses, as uh, 1 Corinthians 15 says. But Jesus is spending time with Zacchaeus. I mean, Zacchaeus, he's in misery, right? He's despised. Okay, he's caught by his sinful life. But he is not the only one who is miserable, right? Yeah, we have many people that are in misery. You may feel that you are in a miserable state at the moment. And Zacchaeus is just one of them. But if you flip the case a little bit, you should be able to note that Jesus Christ, who who was seemingly delaying his journey to Jerusalem, thus spending time with Zacchaeus, is the very Jesus who died on the cross for Zacchaeus and for you and me. So we do not find two different Jesuses or two different versions of Jesus. We have one and the same Jesus. Jesus who seemed to delay his trip to Jerusalem is the very Jesus who died on the cross for the salvation of Zacchaeus and for the salvation of you and me. So there is true integration. Thus, We cannot, should not separate the sweet grace of Jesus 
attested in verses 1 through 6. We should not separate that from his cross. Therefore, I can claim and proclaim that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is cross-centered, cross-bound, cross-italic. So, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, His grace is so sweet and so cross-centered. But our passage does not end in verse 7. It continues. So we will move on to the next main point, the third main point, which is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is transformative. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is transformative, which is based upon verse 8 in particular. Here, I want to go back to the second verse. In the second verse, you will find the exclamation or attention getter, which is in Greek, idu, normally translated, behold, in English, that is found in verse 2, which is a literal translation of the Greek word. And that idu is used the second time in verse 8. So there is some sort of pairing. You may think I'm reading too much into the text, but there is a series of pairing or pairings throughout this passage. Okay, Zacchaeus was uh, willing to see Jesus, verse 3, and that idea is repeated in verse 4, to see him. Okay, Jesus was passing through Jericho, verse 1. That idea is repeated at the end of verse 4. If you look at verse 5, today is mentioned that today, adverb is repeated in verse 9. Zacchaeus' house is referenced in verse 5, and that is referenced again in verse 9, and so forth. So you cannot easily dismiss the idea that there is an intentional pairing on the part of Luke, the inspired author for this book. So let's compare two occasions of Idu. See, attention, but attention to what? In verse 2, it is attention to Zacchaeus' corrupt and compromised lifestyle. It says, And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Let's come to verse 8. You see the second and the last occurrence of a behold. That is from the mouth of Zacchaeus himself. Behold, Lord, half of my goods. I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. So second instance of a behold is introducing Zacchaeus' repentance and transformation. So there is a notable contrast between his former lifestyle, worshiping mammon, and his changed lifestyle, following Jesus the Lord. That is facilitated through the common word, common attention getter, idu, which is translated, behold. Let's get into further details. There is a single word which was not used at all up to this point in the narrative, but is repeated. That is, Lord, curious in Greek. So, I believe Luke is drawing our attention to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. There is a Lordship transfer that has occurred. Formerly, Zacchaeus was worshiping mammon, serving mammon. But now, he is serving Jesus Christ. 
receiving Him as the Lord of His life. That's why confessing Him as Lord. But it's not just uh, about His verbal expression. There is a meaningful change. One is Zacchaeus giving half of his position to the poor, thus becoming a channel of God's blessing as a son of Abraham. A son of Abraham, descendants of Abraham, must be channels of blessing, God's blessing for the world. Just for clarification, giving to the poor, it's not a form of networking or investment. There's no hope of return, especially in the first century Jewish context. If you are poor, you will most likely, most certainly will remain poor for the remainder of your life on earth. And that will continue likely with your descendants. There are a few limited exceptions here and there, but those exceptions are extremely limited as compared to 21st century Kansas City. So once again, it's clear that Zacchaeus has become a channel of God's blessing, giving and blessing others without expecting a return. Also, he's taking responsibility. He's saying that he will repay four times for anything that he has defrauded. I think here the Old Testament background would be very important and significant, um, like Exodus 22.1, which says, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for one and four sheep for a sheep. So by saying that, he will pay four times. Zacchaeus is admitting, acknowledging that he has done something horrible against his neighbors. And he has done that intentionally. This sort of a public confession and repentance is hard to see in our times, even within our evangelical circles. So I have to uh, say that Zacchaeus has repented. There has been a transformation in his life. But that was according to and by and because of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is so sweet, which is so cross-centered, but which is also transformative, as you can see in verse 8. In the last segment of my sermon, I want to just follow the sequence of the narrative, giving attention to a few more details in verses 9 and 10. And then I will have a very simple and brief charge for all of us, myself included. So, three further details. First of them has to do with the comparison between verses 5 and 9. There is a lot of commonality, okay? Verses 5 and 9 contain a lot of similarities, uh, correspondences, commonalities. Number one, today is used twice in this passage, in verse 5 and in verse 9, and in those two places alone. The reference to Zacchaeus' house is occurring twice, only twice in this narrative, and that is verse 9 and verse 5. Also, there is a verbal uh, idea that has to do with presence. So we find intransitive verbs such as stay in verse 5 and came in verse 9. 
But there is a notable difference between verse 5 and verse 9. So there are many similarities and correspondences, but one notable difference concerns the subject of the verb. In verse 5, I must stay in your house. Who is the subject? Jesus, referenced as I. In verse 9, however, the subject is salvation. Salvation came to this household today. So everything else is corresponding very tightly, very closely. But there's one notable difference that has to do with the subject of the verb. In verse 5, I, referring to Jesus. In verse 9, salvation. So what is the implication? The implication is salvation and Jesus are not separable. Jesus and salvation are not separable. In other words, Jesus is the name of salvation. That's why in his second volume, Luke is confessing this. Acts 4.12 And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. From the same pen of Luke, the author, in his second volume. Of course, we must give attention to the final verse of today's passage, that is 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's Jesus' mission statement. In addition, we must draw our attention to the adverb also in the uh, latter part of verse 9. Jesus is saying, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. According to his villagers, Zacchaeus was a sinner, hopeless guy, spiritually corrupt and isolated from his society, social religious, uh, in, in the social religious manner. But in the eyes of Jesus, Zacchaeus was just someone with a great potential to become a generous donor for the kingdom of God and model disciple even. So perspective matters, and we need to follow Jesus' perspective in this regard. Thirdly and finally, we must draw our attention to a particular verb translated as to seek in verse 3 and also in verse 10. That is zeiteo in Greek, which could mean different things, but in this context, to seek is a good rendering. So Zacchaeus was seeking to see Jesus. But son of man came to seek and save the lost. My question is, who is the seeker? Who was seeking whom? The answer is yes. However, the ultimate and greater seeker is our Lord Jesus Christ. Today's passage began with seeking on the part of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, in order to see Jesus probably briefly. But today's story unfolded quite differently. And at the end, it is clarified that Jesus was the ultimate seeker. And Jesus was not delaying his travel to Jerusalem. This was a part of his divine plan. The plan of the triune God 
for salvation. As I conclude this message, I want to pray together with the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. In some translations, 13, 13. However, this is the very last verse of 2 Corinthians. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is so sweet, so cross-centered, and so transformative, and the love of God, and koinonia, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, be with you all. Amen.